<laughs> we can have leadership come up and let's pray for him. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> Father, I thank you that you have given Max the words to share today, Father, and the anointing will fall on him. Father, I just ask that our hearts would be open yes. and our ears would listen. And Father, Amen. that every time we listen to your word, Father, that we will just not only listen, but we will obey. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Bob. <clears throat> so all you non-campers out there, Well, you don't like sleeping on a bed of rocks? <laughs> Unless you have one of them luxury RVs, you know. Yeah, my wife and I were the age that uh, camping insist, ins insisted on being in an RV because uh, tents and hard ground, it just don't cut it anymore. You can't have a soft enough mattress on a bed of rocks. It just doesn't work for some reason. Uh, yeah, welcome. <clears throat> Uh, you're all looking at me like, what the heck is Fleet Farm? <laughs> Anybody here know what Fleet Farm is? Nobody. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> Fleet Farm is a uh, Midwest type store that is uh, kind of like Sportsman's Warehouse and Lowe's combined. They have everything. You go in there, you can buy guns, ammo, and fishing equipment, and get siding for your house, and insulation, and chairs for your lawn, and everything. It's in the store. So anyway, I was in Minnesota this, this June, so we went to a fleet, for, fleet, fleet farm store. That's hard to say. Fleet farm store in Brainerd, Minnesota, and uh, just wandered around and went, oh, this is wonderful, you know, and checked out everything, and bought a couple things, but... Yeah, it's wonderful. I wish we had Fleet Farms here. I would definitely shop there. But. So now you know what Fleet Farm is. That's a piece of worthless information. <clears throat> I want to share a little uh, disclaimer before I get started today. Uh, really, this message is two years in the making. It's something that I've had pieces and parts, and I've been unable to bring it into a real message until recently. And, uh, you know, we went, we've, gone th we've all gone through some pretty crazy times over the last two, three years, right? Yeah. A little weird. And it's all challenged our faith. It's all challenged how we look at so many things. <laughs> the medical community, poli politics, uh, science, you know, and all these things that have kind of just been warped at us a little bit. And we've come oh, I don't know if I want to, I'm not ready for this. So, you know, I've been, I'm kind of a very highly analytical person. Uh, I analyze everything. I'm uh, one of these deep thinkers that when something happens, I just kind of go, what's really going on here? That's just how I'm wired. And, uh, you know, really, I probably should have been an anthropologist. <laughs> Anthropology, the study of humans human culture, how it's developed, and what maintains it. So I find myself naturally doing that. I didn't learn that. It's just in me. 
It's how I'm wired. I just, I just look at these things. I'll see a news headline. By the way, I don't watch news TV because it's too depressing. <laughs> but I'll see a news headline on the internet or something, and, and you'll see the, you know, the 8, 10, 12 word headline, and you go, what are they really trying to say to me with that very pointed headline? That's just how I'm wired. So I look at everything, and you look at the narratives that have been come down through politics in the last three years, and you know some of it is very, very disturbing. Anybody agree? Yeah. Very disturbing. So you know I've just been asking the Lord, God, how do I, how do I address this? How do we, as kingdom people, what is our place? How do we live as kingdom-oriented people in these times? because it is blanketed the earth. And America especially has felt the brunt of that in so many different ways. So I wanna make a disclaimer first off. Uh, if you're young in the Lord and you're coming in and you're just like, woohoo, Jesus saved me, but you don't know much else, you know, you can kind of tune out today. This probably, this message may not be for you. Uh, or if you're just young, young, we've got some young people in here and if. If this goes kind of over your head because I'm going to be talking about some things that might be more on the mature level of understanding, that's fine. I don't mind if you don't get it, okay? Uh, but some of you, even you young people, might kind of go, you know what? That makes sense. That makes sense. And I hope that's the case. But mostly who I'm talking to today is you believers who are been walking with the Lord for a while, you're mature, you understand the Word of God, the foundations of our faith, and you're solid in that, but you're just going, how do I respond to the days in which we live? That's my journey. I want to know how to respond in the day in which I live. How can I be kingdom-oriented? How can I represent God in these times? That's where we're going. I want to give you some background. I'm, I'm a very seasonable, seasonal person. I like seasons. I like spring, summer, winter, fall. I like the differences. And I like differences in my life. Some people are like, man, I like everything the same. Just keep it the same. I'm good with the same. Don't, don't throw any change at me. I'm not like that. I like some change. I like some variety. I like those high woohoo moments. And I like those places where I just kind of get stable and go, you know what, I'm going to persevere through this. I don't necessarily like the real low moments, but I find myself there occasionally. And uh, that's, I'm just seasonal that way. And uh, that's okay. Some of you are very much maybe more like this on the graph. And some of, some of us maybe are more like the graph of a seismic reader of an earthquake. <laughs> Let's hope not. You know, that's probably not healthy. But, uh, you know, maybe we should be a little bit more like this. It's okay to have seasons. What did, uh, what did Solomon say in Ecclesiastes? There's a time and a purpose for everything under heaven. Seasons. And we've gone through, and we're kind of still going through, a major season here in this nation and the earth. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of us have, have kind of just... Uh, been struggling through that and trying to figure it out. 
And I, and I want to figure it out. I want to be someone who can speak to this time that we live in. So anyway, let me give you a little background of where I've been over the last 42 years. I told you this was going to be boring. Uh, I've been a disciple of Jesus for 42 years. I've experienced a lot in my walk with God. <clears throat> and I've been a strong advocate for the Word of God. Hear that, please, young people. Get in the Word of God. Know it backwards and forwards, especially the Gospels, especially the New Testament. Know it. Know it. Know how Jesus would respond. Know how the disciples responded. Know how Paul addressed the issues of his day. It's important. I believe in a major move of God yet to come, one that will radically shift the USA and the world. I've been a prayer warrior for that move of God for nearly 30 years. I was involved in intercession in this church as early as 1994 with Evelyn Sautel, Evelyn, Mighty Prayer Warrior, Lynette Godwin, Nancy Buffington. How many remember Nancy? Prayer Warrior. 1994, I started that group, and we were passionate even then about God wants, what God wants to do. I've had major shifts in my theology over the last 20 years. Yeah, no kidding. Hallelujah. Traditional... Christian traditional doctrine is not necessarily biblical. Amen. There are some things that we've believed over the last hundred years. They're not really biblical. And they have, they have reaped a harvest of destruction in our day. We are looking at the fruit of it now. My understanding of who God is, what he is like, and how he sees things is so much more important to me than traditional thinking. And sometimes I grate people because I don't fall in line with the tradi traditional thinking. Assessing the current cultural climate, my conclusion is not, let me say it again, is not that Jesus is coming soon. Ooh. Can I say that in church? But rather that the powers of darkness are trying to seize the moment and thwart what God wants to do in this season of time. God has got big plans. He is not interested in taking us out of this. He's interested in transforming earth. And we need to embrace that and start knowing what does that look like? How do I do that now? How do I become an advocate for the kingdom here on earth, not just waiting to get our heinies off this planet? Sadly, I perceive too many Western world Christians are asleep, drugged with pleasure, and distracted with entertainment and fruitless ventures, not even aware or choosing to be ignorant of how the enemy is stealing, killing, and destroying in this season. Ooh, that was a pointed statement. But one that I've assessed to be true. But I also believe a number of Western Christians are waking up. I didn't say woke. I said, waking up. Wakey, wakey. Sobering up and suiting up and are confronting the enemy's assaults. Like the movie The Matrix, they have taken the red pill 
and have become soberingly aware of the reality we now find ourselves in. Have you been shocked into reality in the last few years? I hope so. It's startling. It's freaky. But we got to go there. My goal today is to help more of you take the red pill. Be fully awake. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> you can go back to sleep and <laughs> live in fantasy land if you want, or you can become fully awake. Whew. This message today is likely to be the most edgy message I've ever preached. And if not received, well, maybe my last. <laughs> it is likely I will offend a few people today in one way or another. Oh, my. It's good to be offended once in a while. Wakes us up. I want to share a saying with you that has just really hammered me. I seen it first time a couple years ago, and uh, I, I, I keep thinking about it, and it keeps coming up, and I did a little research of where it came from and so forth. Uh, actually came out of the writing of a movie back in the late 80s, early 90s, I believe it was. Uh, but anyway, it goes like this. Hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Weak men make hard times. And then you repeat to the top. Hard times make strong men and women. Strong men and women make good times. Good times make weak strong men and women. Weak strong men and women make hard times. You should write that down and think about that. Because I have to ask a question. Where are we in that cycle right now? With that in mind, <laughs> let's turn in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 25. We're going to go Old Testament first. These things were written for our learning, education, edification, that we might understand the times that we live in. So I'll give you a little background, Numbers 25, uh, if nobody has, if you've not read uh, the first five books of uh, the, the Old Testament, uh, they're said to be written by Moses and uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, so uh, in Numbers, Moses is kind of writing a retelling story of what happened to them, what happened to Israel. Uh, as they came out of Egypt. So just to give you a little background, as you know the story, God gave a uh, Abraham a promise. He said, I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars of the heaven, and I'm going to bring you into a promised land, right? Isn't that what God said to Abraham? And uh, <clears throat> Abraham never really got to see that promise, did he? But he had a son, Isaac, and then Isaac had a son, Jacob, and then Jacob wrestled with God, and God renamed him Israel. Israel had 12 sons, and uh, one of those sons was Joseph. 
And as you know the story, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, ended up in Egypt as a slave, and ended up in uh, Potiphar's house, served there, was mistreated, ended up in prison for a season, and eventually he uh, won the favor of Pharaoh because he had the insight of heaven. He could interpret dreams. He was a man who knew God. And God <clears throat> raised him up in the house of Pharaoh to become powerful. And he was second under command in, uh, under Pharaoh. And as you know the story, saved Pharaoh and, and saved Egypt and the other nations around from the seven-year famine. Good job, Joseph. Because he had insight from the Lord of what to do. And uh, so anyway, uh, making a long story longer, uh, Joseph finally reveals himself to his family, Israel, and, and the other kids, and they, he invites them all to come to Egypt because there's lots of food there and they can stay there. So Israel goes to Egypt, and they're there for a great time of, of pro producing and living, and, and then that pharaoh dies, and other pharaohs come on the scene, and they forget the ways of Joseph. They forget all that Joseph did, the importance to Egypt, and they be begin to see that, oh, the pharaohs are going, wow, these, Egypt, these Israelites are really uh, multiplying. Uh, this could be a problem. So they enslave them. So the Israelites become slaves in Egypt. And this goes on for about 400 years. And uh, the Israelites are crying out to God, Lord, send us a deliverer. And uh, God raises up who? Moses. Right in right in. Egypt itself, he raises up Moses. If you read the story, it's a pretty amazing story. And uh, Moses has to go through this transition of finding out who he is and how God has called him to this moment. And uh, he leads the people out of Egypt. And can't help but think of Charlton Heston saying, let my people go, you know, in the, in the old movie. If you're my age, you probably saw the original Ten Commandments. Uh, and they, they came out of Egypt. They came out of Egypt, they went into the wilderness, and they're wandering around out there, and as you know, the uh, Egyptians get drowned in the sea, and uh, they're kind of stumbling around out there, not a whole lot going on for a while, and then they get to the border where they're going to cross into the promised land. And uh, that's kind of where we are in the story in Numbers 25. They're getting ready to go into the promised land, but something has happened. They've been there 38-plus years, and the whole generation of adults has died off. Because God said, you will not enter my land. Because they didn't bring back a good report. Remember the 12 spies that went into the promised land? They were just supposed to go check it out, see how good the land was. Well, they came back with a really negative report and said, man, we can't. There's no way we can take this land. Sounds familiar for our day. Uh, they came back to the report and said, there's no way we can take their land. There's giants in the land. It's fortified cities, and we look like grasshoppers in their sight. And God told them, he says, that, your generation, it's not going in then. So 38 years they wandered around the wilderness. That whole generation dies off. The younger ones that came out of Egypt have had children, and now there's a whole new generation. And they're still in the wilderness, but now they're getting ready to go in. They're going, getting ready to go in and take the promised land. They have a couple of victories. They fight some battles with some king of the Amorites. Uh, I think is Og, some weird names. King of Arad, Shihon, and Og of the Amorites, and Joshua's army defeats them. 
So they're kind of excited. It's like, ooh, mmm, whoa. Hard times create strong men. I'm feeling it. <laughs> Joshua, Joshua is getting excited. We can go in. We can do this. God is with us. So, so now they're at that point, and now they meet. They, they're about to meet another kingdom, the Moabites. And uh, they're about to encounter uh, the Moabites and King Balak and a mystic name, named Balaam, a worshiper of Baal, or Baal, however you want to say it. So they're about to encounter this new army, this new people. And, uh, <clears throat> and Balak starts, you know, he's fear, he's afraid. He knows that Israel has already troused three kingdoms, and now he stands at his door, and he's thinking, ooh, man, this is not good. i got to do something. So he calls this mystic Balaam, and says, and apparently this guy has a reputation because Balaam called him, or Balak called him. He must have a reputation for something. So got, uh, Balak calls Balaam and he says, I want you to go and curse these people Israel so I can defeat them in battle. And uh, Balaam says, all right, got it, cool. So God confronts Balaam and says, uh-uh-uh, you don't touch those people. You will not curse them. You will bless them. So Balaam ends up blessing Israel five times. This is all prior to Numbers 25. So now we're at that. We're at that stage where Balaam has blessed Israel. And Balak is ticked, of course, because he hired Balaam to curse them. And he's like, great. Thanks, dude. Thought you were on my side. <laughs> so... Anyway, it's a pretty conflicting moment. And then Balaam does something that causes a real problem for Israel. And you can read it about it in uh, Numbers chapter 31, verses 15 and 16, where Balaam counsels Balak and says, send your women into the camp of Israel and entice the men. Now remember, they're now in the Old Covenant. Israel is in the Old Covenant. And they're in a point where they have to give obedience to God as the Old Covenant was set up. And part of that Old Covenant setup was, if you worship other gods, you will incur curses. You can read about that in uh, Deuteronomy. What was that? Um, Deuteronomy 27. If you worship other gods, I will send a curse upon you. I will send plagues upon you. That was part of the Old Covenant agreement that Israel agreed with God. This wasn't mean God. This was an agreement at Mount Sinai. So here they are. They're about to encounter the Moabites. The Moabite women come down and they entice the man and they lead him astray. And, uh, you know, they're doing all kinds of nasty things. And then they lead the men to worship their God, Baal or Baal. And a curse comes upon Israel and a plague falls upon Israel. Okay, so that's the background and that's where we are at this moment. So now let's read from Numbers 25. Well, that was a lot of background, wasn't it? Thank you. So while Israel was staying in Shittim, I say that carefully, 
the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to their sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before their gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baals of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them, the curse of the law. The Lord said to Moses, take all the elders of the people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those <coughs> of your men who have joined in worshiping Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Can you picture this? There's this atrocity going on. Men are led astray. They're worshiping the Baals. And then this guy has a nerve to, right in front of them as they're weeping at the tent of meeting of what has happened, what has come upon them, the tabernacle. They're there weeping, praying, asking God what to do. This guy brings a Moabite woman into his tent right in front of him. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite, and into the woman's body. Then the plague against Israel was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Can you feel the zeal of Pinehas? He was there in the assembly, standing there before the tent of meeting, worshiping, praying, beseeching the Lord what to do. And this guy, an Israelite man, does this thing right in front of them. And it says, I'll read a little bit further. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from Israelites, for he was zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that my zeal, I did not put an end to them. Therefore, tell him, I am making a new covenant, my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. That is a radical picture. Again, a very old covenant story. <laughs> old covenant. That was all acceptable behavior. It looks pretty violent to us. I mean, we read it, we sit here in the New Testament, New Covenant era. Jesus has given us the kingdom of God and the new covenant, all this stuff, and we sit in that. To go back and to read this story, it's almost horrifying. It's almost horrifying to think that that was the acceptable norm, even in God's eyes, 
during that season. I know. Crazy. But nonetheless, a very old covenant story. This story recently came to mind when a couple of things happened recently. Um, I wasn't studying this story. I wasn't thinking about this story, but a couple of things came to mind, and for some reason, this story just came to mind. And I start, kind of went, huh, interesting. So then I started reading it and studying it. One of those things was, uh, you know, back in June this year, uh, it was so-called Pride Month, and, you know, some people in high places were proclaiming that we'll celebrate Pride Month. And uh, to me, it's an abomination that shouldn't be celebrated. It's, it's sin, unfortunately. The people caught in that are caught in sin, and uh, they are captives uh, to a sinful lifestyle. But it should not be celebrated. So our mayor in Grants Pass says, yes, we are going to celebrate Pride Month in June. And that pricked me in a way, kind of like Pinias was pricked. Um, this is my town. This is my town. And it's a kingdom town as far as I'm concerned. So my wife and I both wrote letters to the mayor. We were gracious, but very much to the point. She got a response, I didn't, by one of their aides. But the point was, we were trying to make a point that something as, as uh, crippling to humanity, a sinful lifestyle that messes people up, should not be celebrated. So why are we celebrating it? And we had, I had a bunch of stats, and Rebecca had, you know, it's just one of those things you just kind of feel like, you know what, I want to run a spear through this. This is not right. And then I had a couple of social media interactions with believers <clears throat> that were uh, also celebrating Pride Month and actually participating in a pride parade and saying what a wonderful thing it was and how uh, I never felt so much love and acceptance and joy and freedom and, uh, and how the Christian community, their Christian community was so opposed and and so um, um, legalistically, you know, anti. And I thought to myself, huh, do you know the God you serve? Don't you recognize that that pride parade is, is celebrating something that's very much contrary to what God believes? Not let alone how destructive it is to those who are in it. Celebrating a lifestyle that is degenerative mentally, physically, socially. So I engaged interactive social media interaction with this person and I got a very negative response. And I was kind of amazed. They pulled the old, you know, hate speech card and all that kind of stuff. And you just kind of go, wow, I thought you were a Christian. 
I wasn't, I wasn't hostile, I wasn't angry, I didn't call them filthy, rotten sinners or anything like that. I didn't, I didn't attack anybody. I attacked the narrative that is represented in that pride parade. There's a demonic narrative behind these things. Do you understand that? It's not that it's just a uh, people that are getting a little bit goofy. It's, there's a demonic voice, entity, stronghold or, or uh, principality, whatever, that's motivating these narratives, motivating these moves. We are most definitely engaged in a type of spiritual warfare like we've never seen, not I've ever seen, in 42 years. This is the most radical I've ever seen. And it's doing something to me. It's doing something to me that, in a way, is kind of freaking me out, and in another way, is making me feel good. Because it's like hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Strong men turn the tide. And then there was another social media reaction I had, uh, response I had with somebody who was kind of, in a way, promoting a systemic racist mindset of our country and saying that our country was systemically racist and that was eternally broken and couldn't be fixed. I engaged that also. I ran a spear through it. I said, no. Are there racist people? Yes. But America is not a systemic racist country. It has come further than any other nation on earth on this issue. We have been the advocates fighting it worldwide. That's true. There's always that, oh, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this good? Isn't this rosy? No, it isn't. It's perverted. It's twisted. It's destroying cultures. Yeah. It's like the whole, you know, legalization of drugs in Oregon. Look at the wasteland it's created. Yes. Just think five, six years ago. Yeah, it was around, but now it's everywhere. Blatantly paraded derelict society conditions and it's sad I'm not condemning it I'm, I'm lamenting it and hard times make strong men hmm. by the way there is a recall in progress for the uh, mayor of Grants Pass And it's gained a lot of momentum. So that which we accept, we condone or we approve of. What we stay silent on gives them permission to continue with the narrative. If we give no opposition, then they become emboldened and empowered. And you can never conquer what you're not willing to confront. The thing I think that bothers me the most is because, and, and the church is guilty of this, but society in general and politicians and everybody else is guilty of this, is we have not, we have not said anything effectively. We have not stood up effectively. 
myself included, and said, you know what? That's not, that's not right. That's, that's wrong. That's broken. That's, that is toxic to our society. You see more and more of it now, thank God. But it's been pretty quiet out there and pretty quiet in churches. And I stand here today, I'm kind of glad there's only, you know, so many people because there's very likely I could meet somebody in here that is totally in that line of thinking and they might think I'm totally loony, which that's okay. I decided to be a strong man in hard times. And the worst part of it is they become emboldened and empowered when we don't speak up. And we've watched that for a few years now where there's been a lack of speaking up and they become bolder and empowered in their positions. So it makes it a little more hard times. It makes it a lot more hard times. When you speak the truth and you're called a hate speech person, when you speak the truth right out of God's word and you're called a hater or a homophobe or a whatever, whoa. Can I say this kind of stuff in church? <laughs> I told you this might be my last sermon, so I'm just going to go for it. <clears throat> Paul in Ephesians 4 says, Speak the truth in love. Some will call it hate speech, but it isn't. The truth is always the truth. We just need to learn how to speak it in love. That's the key. How do you speak it in love? How do you stand up and say, no? And do it in such a way that you don't excommunicate that person immediately. And, and suddenly they just kind of go, oh, I don't have any ears for you whatsoever. How do you, and this is, and this is where I find myself. How do I become that person that can speak to these issues clearly without chasing them away and becoming deaf to my words. Big challenge. Because they're trained to become deaf to your words. They're told that you're just this and that and toxic. Or they'll shout you down, just yell at you. Hmm. How am I doing? Ooh. Yeah, well, I'm going to make this a two-part message because uh, I really want to spend good time on it, but uh, I'm just going to go a little further here. Uh, let's go to a New Testament story, shall we? I gave you an Old Testament story, Old Covenant story. Let's do a New Testament story. And this is in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22. And again, I'll set the stage. Jesus knows his time is close to being crucified. And he, uh, the Passover is coming up, and he wants to have Passover with his disciples, so they find a place to do that. And they have what we know as the Last Supper. And it's at the Last Supper that uh, Jesus says, uh, uh, I am initiating a new covenant in my blood. A new covenant. 
Now, remember, they're talking, he's talking to a people who have been under the Old Covenant for about 100, uh, 1,300 years, I believe it is, about that long. So that's what the Jewish nation has known for 1,300 years, Old Covenant, the Law, the Prophets, all of that. That's all they've known. So now he's speaking to them, and he says, today I initiate a new covenant. And it's just Jesus and the 12. I don't even think they grasped the magnitude of what he said. I think for the most part it went right over their head. Until later, when they began to piece it together. It's like, whoa, now we get what he was doing. But I think at that moment they really weren't really getting it. So anyway, he initiates the new covenant in his blood. And uh, so things are going to change. <laughs> in a big way. And then he says, I'm conferring upon you a kingdom. It's right in that passage. He says, I confer on you a kingdom. Even as my father has conferred a kingdom on me, I'm conferring a kingdom on you. That's new. That's something dramatic. That's a big shift. And then he says, uh, all of you are going to fall away on account of me and what's about to happen. And of course, they're like, no way, Jose, you know, I'm, and Peter's like, I'll die with you, you know, and, and uh, Jesus says, no, Peter, I'm sorry, you're going to deny me three times, and Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Dude's going to get ugly for a little bit, but I pray for you, you'll be restored, you'll be fine. So that's where we are, and uh, we pick up the story in Luke 22. Verse uh, 35 and 36. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you out without purse, bag, or sandal, did you lack anything? He's reminding them of when he sent out the 12 and then the 70. And he said, Don't take a bag, don't take a purse, just go. A workman is worthy of his hire. You're going to find God's provision within that. So he says, when I sent you out, did you lack anything? They said, no, we didn't lack anything. It was great. Then Jesus said to them, but I, and he said to them, but now, it's very important that you hear that, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. What in the world? But now, he's just initiated a new covenant. He's just conferred upon them a new kingdom. And he says, the way I sent you before is not the way you're sending now. Hmm. I don't think too many people really grasp that. Jesus is saying the dynamic, dynamic has changed. Bring a purse, money, something to exchange. Bring a bag, provision, food, clothing. Get a sword. Sword? Whoa. That had to rock their minds. Because up to this point, it had been pretty gentle Jesus, you know. Don't buck Rome, don't do anything... And in the Jewish mind, 
they were always thinking when this Messiah comes, he would come and overthrow Rome. So, Jesus, are you saying now we should get a sword and fight Rome? Is it time? Do we get to rise up? Is it time? Hmm. Interesting. And you can see a little bit further on in uh, Luke 22, it says uh, in verse 49 through 51, when Jesus was arrested, what happened? Uh, Peter got zealous and whooped out his sword and whoosh, chopped off the guy's ear. It's like, oh, that was new. Never did that before. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Put it away. Heals the guy's ear. So obviously that wasn't what Jesus had in mind. We're not going out killing people. That's not why I told you to get a sword. There's something Jesus is saying here that's a lot bigger than just buy a sword. He says, I've brought you into a new covenant and a new kingdom, and you need to be prepared. You need to have provisions to function in this new dynamic. Hmm. There was about to be a great clash of kingdoms and warfare tactics were going to be employed. But it was not Israel against Rome as they were taught to believe. <clears throat> this was a call to arms of the sons and daughters of God against the evil forces of darkness in the demonic realm that is now and that, that was now and still is manifesting through people seduced into the enemy's corrupted way of thinking. It first started in the Jewish religious community. You remember Jesus was persecuted by who? The Jewish people, the religious leaders, those that were looking for the Messiah and thought they had it all figured out. There's a lot of people today that think they got it all figured out. I think they're going to be greatly disappointed. And then it was the Rome Romans. When we got into about... Uh, A.D. 65 or so, the, uh, the emperors, uh, uh, Caesars started to per persecute the, not only the Christians, but also the Jews, and uh, became very hostile. Uh, Caesar Nero, we all know, was a very wild madman who had you know, umpteens of thousands of Christians and Jews murdered, and it became uh, quite a thing, a demonic uh, push to destroy humanity and destroy God's people. So here we are nearly 2,000 years and this clash of the kingdoms is still going on. The dy dynamic is quite different. Now it isn't out swords and spears plundering and killing, not at least in America. In some other countries it's, it is. The genocide of believers in other countries is still going on. But in this country, it's not swords and spears. It's demonic narratives trying to destroy the kingdom of God. The powers of darkness trying to destroy humanity in general and the church of Jesus Christ specifically. This, continue, this conflict rages today and is manifesting in a grotesque 
and perverse ways right now. Can you feel the zeal of Pinehas? Is there something rising up in you that says, I hate that. I don't hate people. I hate that thing that's motivating this whole idea, this whole concept. Hang on to that. I'm not advocating violence, physical violence, in any way, shape, or form. I want you to know that straight up. We shouldn't be not going around burning abortion clinics or anything like that. But we have a powerful weapon. We have the truth. We have the truth. And the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is an offensive weapon. It can be used defensively, but it is primarily an offensive weapon. It is designed to cut down. I'm going to wrap it up there because I think that's a good stopping point and a good cliffhanger of where I'm going to go next time. Um, and we're pretty much out of time. So if you would stand with me. Any, everybody still with me? I didn't lose any of you? Good. You're going to go buy a sword? <laughs> you got a sword? Let's be people that learn how to use the sword of the Spirit to set people free, to break the powers of darkness in our day and age, to, as Paul put it, demolish strongholds, demolish principalities and powers, pretenses. You know what a pretense is? It's a preconceived idea of something that's true, something that is established supposedly true is a pretense that everybody just has to agree that that's the truth. That's a pretense. And we get to say, no, it isn't. But we've got to know this. Am I still there? Yeah. We've got to know this, and we've got to know him. We've got to know his heart. We've got to know how would Jesus meet this thing. Lord, you've, you've raised us up for such a time as this. We are not in this time by mistake. And you have brought us through a hard time. We're in the midst of a hard time because you want to raise up strong men and women. I believe that with all my heart. I believe you want to transform this nation and transform this world through people who are passionate for you, who know you, God, I pray that you would stir that in each of us, that we would find those practical ways that we could speak the truth in love, that we could bring the truth into a situation that is clouded with lies and darkness. We can separate this, and we can bring people out of darkness into the light. You've called us to be the light of the world, Lord. Shine through us. Shine through us. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Yeah.